Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning. Uh, just before we start, let me uh, uh, just put a little uh, bug in your head, in your ear. Um, we, uh, the end, in December, on Christmas Eve, we take an, a special offering, and that offering, uh, we like to say, doesn't come to Hillside. It goes, every dollar of it goes outside, so it's, it's a missions-oriented offering. And uh, usually we have something special, which uh, we'll share with you later on in the month, but we also uh, fund our normal missions trip, like our youth are in San Antonio right now. Uh, much of that trip was funded last Christmas Eve. So um, just keep that in mind. Our summer trip is funded that way, some Honduras things that we do, so just keep that in mind. Also, with we're coming to the end of the year, and we're four months into our fiscal year, and we're a little bit behind, so I thought I would throw that out there. If you're behind, then you need to catch up. I'm going to be honest with you. This summer, I got behind, but I've caught up. I got caught up in October. So if you're behind and you need to get caught up, our building fund is, is okay, but it's still a little below what our goal was for the end of the year. So this is just a reminder. It's, uh, I'm sure you prefer the reminder as opposed to a sermon. So there you go. <laughs> We're coming to the end. In many ways, in the book of Mark, this is the moment of Jesus' death. And it's fitting that a curtain should come down. Uh, You've heard the phrase, it's curtains. Well, I know some young people who didn't really know what that meant. Uh, But it developed really in the early 20th century at the end of a play. It was in theater that, you know, a play would come end and the curtain would come down. And that sort of became an idiom for uh, the end of anything, really. And uh, when I was young, it was in cartoons all the time, Bugs Bunny. You know, I can remember Bugs Bunny as the the gangster and saying, curtains for you, Rocky. I remember that line. Uh, And then even in gangster movies, you'd see it, uh, James Cagney, you can almost see him and hear him saying it right now. It's curtains for you. Because it meant death. It meant the end. I mean, this is the end for you. And Jesus' death is, is an end, and it marks the end of a number of critical things as we come to the end of the book of Mark that we need to be mindful of. One, uh, the first one, is it marks the end uh, of the book. It marks the end of Mark's picture of Jesus. So in many ways... Uh, it's the high point of the book. Um, Mark is saying that now you should have a clear picture of who Jesus is. Right here as he dies, the end of his life, it should be a clear picture. And in fact, uh, he wants you to see that, and that's the theme of his whole book. Um, Remember, in fact, in this theme... Right here in this passage, right here, I wanted you to see it, because verses 32 to 41, literally, the theme of seeing comes out. You have, you see it here, here, this word's listen, but 
It's the word for behold. It's the same word as the word see here. So they saw, they're watching. You've got the women watching at the end. You've got the centurion watching. You've got the bystanders are uh, watching. And then these are the uh, religious leaders up here who are seeing. So they're all seeing. Mark is like, hey, pointing our attention to make sure you see this. Because this is the conclusion. This is the fullest picture that you're going to have. Uh, one of the interesting things, because this takes us back to the beginning of the book, because if Mark completes his picture here, how did he start his picture? Well, there are really two baptisms. Mark starts out the book with the first baptism of Jesus, and now he's going to end with what he has called the second baptism in Jesus' life. Remember in chapter 10, Jesus' death was referred to as a baptism. Jesus said, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to go through? So in the first baptism, notice, the heavens are split apart. The Holy Spirit descends. God is present. John the Baptist is pictured as Elijah. There's a voice from heaven, and it says, you are my son. So here in this significant paragraph where Jesus dies, his second baptism, same things happen. There's a temple veil that's split apart. Instead of the spirit descending like a dove, the spirit goes out of him. The breath goes out of him and he dies. Uh, not, God is not present. God, is, God forsakes Jesus in this text. Uh, Elijah was present with John the Baptist. They can't see Elijah here in this text. They're, they're looking for him. Elijah's absent. There's a voice from heaven in the first one. There's a voice from earth in the second one. The centurion speaks. And what God said here at the beginning, you are my son, the centurion says, this is the son of God. So he, Mark 1.1 starts out like this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So the son of God is his picture. And then he spends the rest of the book trying to show you who he is. First, Heaven realizes it, and God speaks it, and then finally earth sees it, and the centurion speaks it. So Mark is bringing all of it together to form a composite picture. So the curtain is coming down, sort of metaphorically, on Mark's presentation. This is it. This is the full picture of who Jesus is. Jesus' end, Jesus' end, is Mark's end. So we see Jesus live after his first baptism. We see him die after his second one. And by then, you should have a full picture of who Jesus is. And something interesting happens uh, right here in this text um, with the Jewish leaders uh, who fail to see who Jesus is uh, because he cries from this text, you know, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He says that when some of the bystanders heard it, they said, behold, He's calling for Elijah. And then someone runs and grabs a sponge, puts sour wine on the end of it, on, a, on the end of a stick, and, and gives it to him to drink. And they say to him, Leave him alone. Let's see, there's Mark's theme, if Elijah will come and take him down. So all of a sudden, Elijah comes back into the picture. They're still looking, but not seeing. And that's what this text here is about. Here, Jesus is provide, or Mark is providing the final picture of who Jesus is. And even in this last dying breath of Jesus, Mark says people still misunderstand what he's saying. Because he says, Eloi, Eloi. They hear, Eli, Eli. 
You say, why? They were, as the Jewish leaders and Jewish people, they were so uh, tunnel vision as it came to the Messiah. And when they thought of the Messiah, they thought of a deliverer who was going to come. And of course, as part of the prediction of the deliverer coming, Elijah would come first. And over time, Elijah had sort of taken on this uh, uh, persona of a patron saint who would come and rescue lost causes. And they had essentially seen Jesus on that cross as a lost cause. They completely missed the picture Mark wants them to see. And they're looking for Elijah to come. Well, Elijah had already come in chapter 1 in John the Baptist. Jesus says that in chapter 9. Elijah was John the Baptist. The Messiah's already here. He didn't come the way you thought he would come, but that's him there, and they can't see it. And Mark just draws out in this point here this still sort of bitter rejection, and there's more to it than the inability to see because they say, let's see. I mean, they think they can see. And here's the thing with spiritual stuff, and this is just something to tuck away in your head right now. When it comes to spiritual things, it's really easy to think you see and you don't. It's really easy. That's been Mark's argument all the way through. You're, remember in chapter 4, he, he talked about seeing. And then in chapter 8, remember when he heals that blind man in two? It sort of takes two miracles to heal, to heal one blind guy. It's the only miracle that takes two parts. It's because he only sees half. And Jesus says, you have eyes. Can you see anything? Because they can't, they can't see. And what you realize is they think they can see and they can't. And then on top of that, you have this sort of image of them giving him this uh, drink. And this is a sort of a bitter vinegar wine that soldiers always kept nearby at a crucifixion. Sometimes they drank it themselves. Sometimes they would prolong the death of somebody by handing it to someone else. So this is uh, a sort of a cheap vinegar water wine. Soldiers would either take it themselves or they'd give it to, to the guy being crucified. And uh, so what, what Mark is saying is this is just another piece of their bitter re- rejection, hoping that they can prolong Jesus' life and, and sort of uh, sarcastically waiting for Elijah to come and rescue him when he was there to do the rescuing. So they just completely missed it, and, and, and Mark just sort of wraps up his theme of can you see. I was listening to the Beatles this week. Uh, they're on my uh, iTunes little shuffle, and a number of their songs just happen to come on more often this week than normal. And uh, you remember Nowhere Man? If you listen to that song, I mean, and you're studying this text, the lines, please listen you don't know what you're missing. You can hear it in here. And then he says of this nowhere man, he's as blind as he can be, just sees what he wants to see. It's very possible, and this is underlining Mark's argument. Sometimes you don't want to see, that's why you don't see. Sometimes you don't want to see, that's why you don't see. So that would be the question today. As the curtain comes down on Mark's presentation of who Jesus is, the question before us is, can you see him? Do you want to see him? Because the opportunity to see him clearer than ever 
Mark has presented. There's another way the curtain comes down. It comes down a second time, and it comes down literally in this passage. So it's curtains for the curtain. It's curtains for the veil, the temple veil. Jesus' death brings down the temple veil, and it's a violent sort of thing, a powerful thing. Um, Now let me tell you something about the the curtain a little bit. Uh, This curtain was pretty massive for, for a curtain. Uh, 60 to 80 feet long. It could be as uh, 20 to 30 feet wide. It was four inches thick. It was a massive thing. Uh, the Talmud suggests that it would take that, that it took 300 men to manage it. Okay, that's how big it is. Um, Josephus, Jewish historian, said if two horses got on either end of it and pulled against each other, they couldn't pull that thing apart. This thing functioned like a barrier. It was designed to keep you out. I mean, that's, that's essentially what this was. God and humanity have to be separate. They can't come together. Holy and, un- and unholy can't mix. And so every year, the Israelites would sort of stand in a holy hush waiting to see if the high priest, the only one allowed in there, the holiest man among them, on the holiest day with the holiest sacrifice, would walk into that thing and they would listen. And it was a scary time. It was scary. Remember, they put bells on the bottom of him because if he, if he died, if he didn't make it, they had to pull him out by a rope. No one could go in there. And so it was all, let's see if the priest makes it. That's the first hurdle. And then let's see if the sacrifice works for us. So it was a scary time. And what that barrier did was it sort of protected God from humanity. Protected him. It was hidden. It was isolated. God is over there. And man is, sinful man is over here. That's this moment. And of course, the temple represented the center of spiritual reality for Israel. It was everything to them. And this curtain rips. I mean, and it is, it's, the word used is a, is a very violent rip. Now, Mark used that same term at the beginning of his, at the beginning, when the heavens ripped open and God's voice speaks. And there's this graphic picture of there's a ripping at the front of the book and there's a ripping at the end of the book. And it's a powerful, very, very powerful imagery of all reality sort of being ripped open and God coming down to us. God coming here and solving man's problem here as opposed to man trying to solve it himself or relate to God himself. That's what all that ritual was about. So there's this cataclysmic picture of the heavens being broken into where God has to come down. Then there's another cataclysmic picture of the temple being rent and God making a way for human beings. Not only does he have to get here and break through that reality, but he has to break through another one, a spiritual one, so that man can have access to him. And it's all God's doing from top to bottom. That's why the imagery of it ripped from top to bottom to make you understand that this is from an above-down issue. This is a dove, above-down solution to mankind. Religion is all about getting up to God. Christianity is all about God coming down here and literally ripping things apart to get here. 
ripping realities apart to make God's presence available to human beings. So what it was really the curtains on, it's curtains on religion. It's the end of religion. All of that activity designed to keep you okay with God, the scary activities, they're done. One commentator, uh, I love this, said it was, it's like divine vandalism. The temple's doom. No longer will the religious activity be needed for people to enter into relationship with God. Uh, Hebrews does something very interesting with this text. Uh, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence. We don't have to be scared anymore. By the how? By the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain. That is, through his flesh. All of a sudden, the writer of Hebrews makes this incredible connection between the curtain and Jesus' flesh, as if to say, when Jesus was ripped open, the curtain was ripped apart. He is now how we get access to God. That's what was happening in that moment. So Hebrews says, we come boldly before the throne of grace. That's what Mark meant by the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is now the Holy of Holies. The cross is the new meeting place. It's the intersection where God meets humanity. And it's the only way to him. And what we get to see in this text is the first person who walks through it. That's what we see. In verse 39, you see the response of the centurion. When the centurion who stood in front of him, right in front of him, just in a front row seat, Mark is saying. And it's, it's almost like, everybody take up a front row seat to this. Don't miss it. And he saw how Jesus died. And then he says this incredibly remarkable statement. Truly, this man was God's son. Coming from this guy. I mean, this is it. It's the, it's the confessional high point of the book because a human being, for the first time in the book of Mark, actually sees Jesus as the Son of God for the first time. Heaven had already declared it when God's voice came out of heaven in chapter 1. The demons have been saying it all the way through, so heaven and hell both have seen it, but humans have not until this moment here. The first human being, so to speak, to walk through the Holy of Holies and see who Jesus really was and be granted access to God is this man here. And he says he's the Son. So this is the confessional high point of the book. It's also the Christological high point of the book because now Mark is saying, my picture is complete. And you can't see who Jesus really is until you look at his death. Because if you don't understand what he did, then you can't understand who he is and you can't understand what he was claiming. You can't understand what he accomplished. And Mark doesn't want you to miss any of that. And he sees it as finally revealed here. So he's the first one to walk through the Holy of Holies. And you know what it is? It's curtains for something else. 
It's not just curtains for Mark's presentation of Jesus. It's not just curtains for religion and the end of the temple. It's curtains for the centurion. Curtains for him. Jesus' death is just bringing the curtains down on everything. Consider this, the fact that he, is, that he calls Jesus the Son of God. This is a profound statement coming from him because it was only used of Caesar, especially for a centurion, especially for a soldier. They viewed Caesar as the Son of God. They viewed the Caesar as divine. Do you remember when in chapter 12 when Jesus showed him a coin? Remember what he said on the coin? This is the son of Augustus, Caesar, the son of Augustus. That meant he was godlike. It meant he was divine. If you served in, I mean, if you lived in that era, you couldn't put anything above Caesar. It's certainly not if you were one of the soldiers where you had pledged your life and allegiance to this man and you saw him as divine. Uh, this was requiring a completely new allegiance out of this man. To say that is for him to say, there is another one who is above him. There's another God. There's someone above him. And it called into question everything, all of Caesar's values that this man had completely devoted himself to. Because he was not just a soldier. He was a leader of a hundred of them. That's what a centurion is. And so you know what it did. It basically was also brought the curtain down on Caesar's divinity. It brought the curtain down on Caesar's divinity. Because he has to change his values. He has to change everything about life. He viewed everything through the fact that, it was, that Caesar was God. And that's what happens when Jesus comes into your life. When you recognize his divinity, everything else you thought was God or treated as God can't stay God. And this would radically change his life. He wouldn't view the world the same ever. And, it, and he's attributing this divinity. Think about this because you got to see it. And Mark wraps up all of his themes really in the thought that he is going to call divine a man, a Jewish guy, who's now hanging dead on the lowliest, worst kind of horrific death you can die. The most shameful, cursed kind of death you can die is who he attributes divinity to. That is incredibly radical. So incredibly radical. Uh, Garland, one of the commentators that I like on Mark, said this, because this is how radical his world would have changed in that moment. To make his confession, the centurion also must have completely revised his understanding of power. You see, when you saw Caesar as divine, you say, he's the one with all the authority and all the power. He, he gives you life or he takes life away. Here's a man claiming to be divine and a king with no power, no might, just the opposite, weakness. He says, the power that Rome represented was coercive. It forced others to submit or else. Jesus' powerless death exerts a different kind of power from what the centurion had served and used on others. And he recognized the true power, 
which was revealed in the cross. It's not coercive. It's not ex- exploitative or manipulative. The power, has, the power he served crushed others and transformed life into death. The power of the cross gives itself for others and transforms death into life. That's what he's experiencing. I mean, this guy was a professional killer. He was an executioner. That's what he did. He was good at it. How many inhumane and unjust acts must have come from his hands as a leader of these soldiers? And yet when he sees Jesus die, his entire world gets shaken upside down. His, the curtains come down on his entire universe. He, the center of reality for him completely changed because Caesar was at the center of it. And his life revolved around that. And anything your life revolves around, when you see who Jesus is, it loses its central place anymore. And the other beautiful thing about him is that he hadn't seen any of Jesus' miracles. He didn't see what everyone got a chance to see. He didn't hear any of the teaching. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't religious, as far as we can tell. Caesar's your God. And and he wasn't a disciple. He wasn't who you'd think would see it. The least likely candidate to see it. So the curtain is not just open. It's literally ripped apart, and God has thrown open access to him by anyone, even hitmen, executioners. And you think about the fact of what Jesus says at the cross, because Mark only records one of Jesus' seven sayings, and it comes at the very end. Where he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And two things are happening here. Jesus is experiencing personal abandonment, okay, at infinite levels. And we've all experienced some physical or emotional abandonment. One of the worst feelings to feel as a human being is, is, is loneliness, to be truly alone or to feel abandoned in any way. And Jesus feels it infinitely, infinitely here. Because he has this infinite relationship with God, eternal. And God sort of looks away from him. The paradox in that is that Jesus is feeling this separation. Meanwhile, God is all over this event. He's as present in this event as he was in the baptism. I mean, God is the one at work here. He's the one bringing judgment. He's the one doing the saving. He's the one doing the ripping. That's the point from top to bottom. That could have only happened by God. And that is what brings out this whole second piece as you ask, well, then why did Jesus say that? Why did he say, why have you forsaken me? Don't you think he knew? You know, all of the sayings that come from the cross or of course, Jesus communicating in certain moments. He's communicating, sometimes he communicates with John about Mary. You remember that whole story. 
He asks God to forgive. He's communicating with God. He communicates with John. But the whole, it's designed for everyone who hears it to think and reflect on what he's saying. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 in verse 1. So he's experiencing exactly what the sufferer, the righteous sufferer in Psalm 22 is experiencing. He says it out loud and it forces us to ask the question, yeah, why, God? Why is it dark and why aren't you here? Well, the answer comes in the two things that happen after Jesus says it. Number one, the curtain gets ripped. I... I moved away so the curtain could be ripped and so that centurions, sinful people, even ones who would, by their own hands, would kill me, could have access to God. So the irreligious, the clueless, the hard-hearted, killers, unjust, ungodly, my enemies could literally have access to me. That's why. And God knew it, but he wanted you to ponder it. Of course, he's feeling this personal thing, but he's also asking you to think about it. So that the centurion is really Mark's answer to Jesus' question. Why would you abandon me? So that people like him could be forgiven. I was forsaken. And you can see, the curtain had, when Jesus died, the curtain has to come down on certain things in your life. Well, of course, it comes down on Mark's picture of who Jesus is. That had to happen. You had to see who he fully was. Uh, But it also had to come down in the temple because that would, because that, that was a message to human beings. Stop the religious activity. Stop trying to impress me. I don't need you to do it anymore. It's, it's, not, nearly, it's not nearly the uh, scary place it used to be. So stop with the games. It had to come down. Jesus' death, it had to bring this centurion. John, Mark had to give us a picture of what it would mean when Jesus became this person in your life. It means it would, have to, it would be curtains on anything else you saw as God. And aren't you glad Standing where we stand now, that that centurion figured out sometime in his life, Caesar wasn't his God. Aren't you glad? And I wonder if right now you might be thrilled to know that what you are orbiting your life around isn't God at all. If it isn't Jesus. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be health. It could be wealth. It could just be happiness and significance. It could be any of those things. All those things get in the way sometimes and become the center, and we orbit our lives around them. And in our day right now, it could be your point of view. That's what kept those bystanders from seeing Jesus. They had a point of view, and they couldn't get rid of the point of view. They wouldn't stop to consider Jesus long enough to get rid of their sacred point of view. And you know the beautiful irony of the curtain coming down and sort of signifying the end of all these things is that it's not really the end of anything. It's the beginning of everything. Jesus' death marks the beginning of 
first of all, a complete picture of who God is. Uh, acts, complete access to God. And in this centurion's life, a complete change of who he was. This whole scene is covered in darkness. And then Mark never pulls the darkness away. He doesn't want you to feel out of the dark in this scene. This is a really important element to the story. Because, of course, not, it was just, this is noon. And this thing is it's dark for three hours. So it's not cosmic. Uh, it's not astrological. Because uh, it's, it's dark for three hours. The worst time of year. You, could, you can't explain it in any way because of the time of day and the time of year it was. That means it's a supernatural darkness covering this thing. And that darkness signifies not so much God's absence, but his presence. If you go through the Old Testament, you even go in Mark chapter 13, when the sun stops shining, it's God present in judgment. It's not God absent. It's God present in judgment. And that means another paradox. God can be present and absent all at the same time. In one moment, he's absent from Jesus' person in relationship with God. But in another moment, he's completely present and active. What's going on in that darkness? Well, you go all the way back to Genesis 1 to understand how darkness works. When darkness covers the earth, it's a picture of Emptiness and, and void reality. Nothingness. It's nothingness. It pictures chaos and disorder. Out of that, God brings light. Remember in Genesis 1? And out of the darkness that is shrouding this, the end and the curtain down on everything, out of this chaos, it's as if, it's as if God is speaking into this chaos again and recreating out of it. He is bringing all of the chaos onto his son as if his son is being uncreated so that you and I could be recreated. That's literally what's happening. Out of the chaos of reality and our lives, God recreates. When you see Jesus for who he really is, what, is, what does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? If anyone is in Christ, what is he? It's a new creature. That centurion was a new creature. All because the center of his reality got changed. The curtain came down on the universe as he knew it. It ended one part of his life, but it launched and opened a whole other part. And he was recreated in that moment. That's why N.T. Wright says, out of the unexplained cosmic darkness comes God's new word of creation as at the beginning. As phenomenal as speaking the world into existence was. How much more mind-boggling is it that God would actually come into this universe Become so in, enter the chaos, become sort of be, be unraveled and, and uncreated, so to speak, be ripped open to create access to you. How, how, how phenomenal is it? It's, it's overwhelming. I had two 
final practical thoughts that came to my mind that you might be able to uh, relate to. One is, um, no one is out of reach. No one is out of reach. Uh, I don't know if you have this in your life. I'm sure you do. You have someone either you know well or that you get introduced to at some point in your world through some means that you think that's a lost cause. And I wonder how many of you have said in the last day or the last week or the last year of someone that person is a lost cause. I have a family member, and I recently had a conversation with some family. It's just it's the same story over and over. It's a very painful, hard story. And this gal in my family, and over the last couple of weeks, I have actually thought, and I may have even verbalized, she's a lost cause. Well, this passage is curtains on that idea. It's curtains on that idea. Because there are no lost causes. And for any time you and I get to the place where we think there's a lost cause, we're missing what Jesus has done and the incredible grace that's accessible. The profound grace accessible to you or to someone else. The other thing that hit me really, really hard uh, is if you're going through a dark time, how should we see that? How does the cross help us see in a dark time? Because when you get to dark times, the first thing that you'll do when, when the bottom falls out is you'll look up at God and you'll say, Why? You'll look up at him and you'll think he has turned his back on you. And I got to tell you, Jesus is simply saying right here and in this moment here, God turned his back on me, so he will never turn his back on you. He was forsaken for you. And in darkness... Because God has the ability to be absent in one way and present in another. And so, yes, you will at times feel like you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death by yourself. But he's in the darkness. And he creates life and gives hope out of darkness. That's who he is and that's what he does. So don't abandon him because he has not abandoned you. The cross brings that kind of hope to human beings. It is the most important thing <laughs> that has ever happened in reality. And Mark is hoping to God that you don't miss it. You're bowing your heads, would you?
Father, thank you for making a way, for ripping into reality, and then being willing to be ripped apart to bring an end to our sin and our idols, which now, looking, looking through the cross, just seems so utterly ridiculous. And so I pray today that you'll do what you did that day, is open eyes. Open eyes so that people will see the wonder of your grace and your forgiveness and your salvation that comes solely through what your Son has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.